Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. The number one selling product of its kind with over 20 years of research and innovation. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. Hello and welcome to the first Press Gazette podcast of 2018. I'm Thomas Kavanagh and today I'll be joined by Gareth Brown, Press Gazette's new journalist of the year. At just 22, Gareth flew to Iraq to report on the Battle of Mosul. I'm glad to say he's back safe and sound and joins me now. So thanks Gareth for coming down and welcome to the Press Gazette podcast. Thank you very much, pleasure to be on. So I guess I'll start with the obvious question. Uh, why did you up and go to Iraq at the age of 22? Um, I guess there's no one single answer to that. You know, prior to that, I'd been studying Arabic um, at uh, the University of Exeter, and I'd just graduated. I was kind of aware that there was this big offensive about to take place against Islamic State in the north of Iraq. And I'd studied Iraq really in depth at university. You know, I wrote my, wrote my dissertation about it. I felt like I had quite a solid knowledge of, of the kind of the environment and the, the conflict I was going into. Uh, so I guess in those regards, it seemed like a no-brainer. Um, like, you know, from a f- professional se- sense, I was, I was really interested in what was going on and, and, it, and it seemed like a good place to, you know, start getting stories published and, and start working professionally as a journalist. And, you know, I'd probably be lying if I didn't say there was an element of a, adventure, you know, going to a different country and living there for a long period of time is the sort of thing I love doing anyway. And then to add all the kind of political you know, context into that, you know, it, I really didn't think twice about it in some ways. What did your family say? Uh, yeah, that was, a, that was pretty, that was probably one of the toughest things about going, actually. So I, t- I told my, my parents, I mean, I already had a brother in Iraq who was working there for United, the United Nations. 
which I think helped a little bit. Mm. Um, uh, when I when I went, I actually told my parents that I was going to um, Turkey. Um, even when my dad dropped me at Gatwick, he thought he said, "Have fun in Turkey." You know, he, I told them I was going out to Istanbul to kind of set myself up there as a journalist. Uh, and then I kind of landed in landed in Erbil in northern Iraq and didn't. Um, I buried my head in the sand for a few weeks, and I was kind of really. St- I mean, that that was more stressful than anything else. Kind of thinking, how am I going to tell my mother where I actually am? <laughs> how am I going to get out of this little this little white lie? Uh, and then, um, I mean, after about, I think I'd been in in country for about four weeks, and then the, I, I, you know, I didn't write anything in my first four weeks, and then the offensive um, it kicked off. That was October uh, twenty sixteen. And I was there on the first night. I mean, there were lots of journalists there, but I really was. Uh, we camped out the night before, and we went in with the Kurdish Peshmergas. They kind of went into these you know, handful of villages mm. held by ISIS. And uh, I'd been tweeting about it, and I got some had some producers like contacting me through Twitter. So had a load of you know I I really hadn't had very I'd had very little published before I went out. You know, I'd done a little bit of work with some newspapers, but I'd never done any of the broadcast stuff. So I got I got a call from LBC Radio. And they said, Gareth, can you, you know, give us a two-minute interview? Mm. And I was like, yeah, sure. Whose who show? Um, I think it was Sheila Fogarty. Ah. Um, so I was like, yeah, of course, jumped at the chance, jumped at the chance to do some radio. Uh, I was so excited, and I remember texting my mum saying, oh, mum, guess what? I'm going to be on the radio. Make sure you tune in. Maybe uh, and, and at this point, she didn't... She, she still, didn't was still in Turkey, and then, uh, <laughs> yeah, on the radio, I was introduced, you know, we're going live to, to Gareth Brown in... In Mosul, Iraq, and that was how my mother found out. Uh, and I think that was a two-minute interview, and I, by the end of it, I had about fourteen missed phone calls, <laughs> <laughs> lots of lots of four-letter words. But yeah. Um, so was she? So her reaction was very calm. Uh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure it was calm. <laughs> she was worried, like any mother would be. But I think it quickly dawned on her, like how serious I was about doing it. I really wasn't there for a jolly. Yeah, it wasn't a gap year. You yeah, know, I was there because I was really, really, I was passionately interested in what was going on, and you know, she always knew that I, that was what I wanted to do. Mm. And I think quite quickly she kind of learned to accept it. And I think my dad was a bit more, I won't say supportive, but I sometimes he was like living vicariously through me. There was, I think, when he found out there was an element of oh, that's my boy, you know, yeah, going out there and actually doing it. Um, but yeah, I mean. It was a bit of a shock for them, but, uh, you know, mum and dad were n- number one fan, biggest critic at the same time. So, <laughs> so you say you landed in Erbil, that's the Kurdish part of Iraq. Yeah. You just flew directly there? Yeah, I mean, that, that was the remarkable thing about it. It's really, re- well, it was really easy to get there. I mean, you can you fly to Erbil f- via Istanbul. You can get a budget flight for about a, less than 150 quid, you know. Um, there was a lot of journalists there because it was a really, really accessible kind of story um so yeah i didn't you know it was like you could have been booking a flight anywhere you really didn't have to obviously you're you you know you're considering the risks and you're and you're thinking of contingency plans and you're you're generally planning as much as you can but really there's nothing stopping you from booking a flight right now and flying out well you know the situation's changed now but back then you could fly out on the same mm. the same day you booked the ticket and once you landed what were your moves when you got to the ground it was just trying to meet people. I mean, and, and, and you know, n- knowing something, knowing a topic from an academic perspective or from books you've read or other documentaries you've watched is one thing, but actually 
uh, being familiar with the topic on the ground is very different. So I was Im- immediately trying to meet as many people as I could. And these were like other journalists, uh, aid workers, um, government officials, um, you know, like, um, and just trying to work out, you know, what are the mechanics of operating as a journalist here? Like, I didn't have a journalist visa. That was fine. I didn't need one. But I mean, how do I, you know, th- there's nothing going on in Erbil. It's, it's a safe city. Mm. Although, I mean, maybe to say there's nothing going on, perhaps that's inaccurate, but there wasn't the story that I was, I was looking for in, in Erbil. So what are the mechanics of, 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 you know, living in Erbil and then actually getting to, to Mosul, to getting to the front lines, to getting to, to where the IDPs, the displaced people are? That's where the stories are, you know? Mm. Um, so that was kind of my immediate thing. There was, and you know, there was, there was lots of, you know, people would work, you know, whether you were a journalist or a aid worker, you had, you know, people would work really stressful weeks and then all come together, kind of Friday nights, and there's some very, very um, memorable party. Well, probably not memorable, but very large parties. You're, you're, you're going for a drink with other journalists and you're sharing ideas and swapping contacts, and, and you know, you're, and then you start to meet people who you can work together with, um, you know, photographers who, who I would go out with or other journalists from other publications that weren't rival publications, so we could kind of share information and I th- that was the critical thing for me was just going out there and meeting people yeah and 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 you know just discussing all these mechanics of, of operating out there okay so you've you're in a bill you've met a sort of press pool that's out there yeah um you've settled yourself in at no point was there any fear of what was coming up i think yeah you know that period of um anticipation no one knew exactly when the offensive was going to start, and I think I think it started on the sixteenth in the end, sixteenth of October, was it? And and you're kind of you're waiting for that day, but you don't exactly know when it's going to be. And you know there is a little bit of anticipation, but it's also, you know, it's kind of an ugly secret, but it's also a little bit thrilling as well. It's a little mm. bit exciting. You really are going into the unknown. And you know, I had like I I come pretty much straight out of university, had a very sheltered upbringing. You know, I, before I went to Iraq, I'd never. Never been to a funeral. A funeral in the UK. I'd never really had a close relative die or anything like that. So I think the first kind of shock was, you know, when you start to see, like, the, f- the first time I was in combat or, or the first time I was a witness to combat. You know, I can remember the first time, like, seeing a dead body. You know, this this is... You're, you're being... You're being taken out of a really... Um, a really sanitised environment. And then, and then you're having all of these, these like kind of ethical, moral, uh, mental challenges thrown at you, like in a very, very short space of time. And it's mm. really concentrated, and it was, you know, that was tough to begin with. But I, I, I like to think I adapted pretty quickly, and I, ne- I never wanted to really, I never thought I'd seen too much or wanted to go home because I was scared. That that was never, never mm. crossed my mind. And you've gone from Erbil to Mosul, yeah. And those first few days of the battle, can you just describe those? Uh, yeah, I mean, that very first day was my, I mean, that's like an enduring memory that I'll, I'll never forget. We, um, me and, uh, um, two other guys I've been working with, we, 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 you know, we'd heard that it was, it was going to start at 5am or whatever the next morning. So we got a, um, we got our driver and we went, we went up just as far as we could and we stopped at this Kurdish Peshmerga base. And we were when we got there, we were the only ones there, and we were like, "Oh wow, we're gonna we got the we've got the scoop on the whole world," mm. and we we got we sat in this kind of enclosed Peshmerga base for about two hours, and then in within that two hours, just about every journalist I had ever heard of or ever, <laughs> ever read arrived, and I was like, "Okay, you know, maybe we weren't 
we didn't have the scoop. And I remember like CNN showed up with like three armored trucks or something. And I was like, right, <laughs> You're there with a pen yeah. and paper. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so then they split us out into smaller groups, and each there'd be like maybe half a dozen journalists in each group, maybe maybe a few more, maybe ten. And you, you were always all put with different um, units going through different villages, different towns. Yeah, I mean, we went out with our, with our unit and we slept in this abandoned house. We, we, I mean, and it was really surreal because, you know, they're like, oh, just rest here for a couple of hours until, until we actually start moving. But no one could sleep. The anticipation was incredible. Like, you know, you're with these soldiers who have been waiting for this battle for two years. And Iraq is a massive country, but what I noticed was it's impossible, whether you're in the Arab areas, whether you're in the Kurdish areas, whether you're down south in, like, in Baghdad, everyone has been personally affected by the war somehow. Mm. They have a cousin who's died, or they've been displaced from somewhere, a city that was taken over by ISIL, or they've had their house uh, destroyed in an airstrike. Everyone has a, has a really intense personal connection to that conflict. So waiting that night before, we, you know, we were with the Peshmerga, and they... It, it kind of it kind of fed off that in a way it was you could tell it was a really good, it was going to be a really really personal fight um and I, I didn't sleep at all that night i just stayed up all night just chatting to soldiers and they were firing artillery um you know we could hear that going off every so often and just kind of wandering around and you could kind of look up into the distance and you could see mosul and it was very few light there wasn't really much electricity on the seat but there was a few lights and you could just about make them out and you know you you're looking at Islamic State, which is this boogeyman, isn't it? This geopolitical boogeyman, mm. which is everyone knows the term, but then to actually, um, I guess, in a way, personalise it and make it a tangible entity is is a very very different thing. And then you know, I think it was about five or six a.m. They said, you know, we get the call and we just join this convoy, which must have been more than a hundred vehicles long. Like, you know, there was like um, MRAPs, um, um, all these kind of different armoured vehicles trucks just carrying loads of soldiers and then we were just in our Hilux just going going forward with them there was US special forces there as well as we saw um, and then yeah well, I mean the unit we were with were taking three villages and we kind of stayed a village behind so they were going to the first village and we, we were coming down from this mountain and you know you could, you could watch you could watch the fighting going on you could watch you could see the muzzle flashes you could see them calling in airstrikes you could see smoke billowing out you could you could hear it you know, but we we stayed quite far back, just just to be as safe as we could, and slowly moved in. Um, we were kind of a village behind the Peshmerga, and you know that was when we went into the first village. That was when I saw, you know, there was there was like you know a handful of dead ISIS fighters just in the streets. Once this offensive had sort of cleared out ahead of you, yeah, what what are you confronted with when you when you walk into the to this village that's been sure. the scene of a battle? Yeah, I mean, it's 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 a weird mixture of like the 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 quotidian and the the surreal. Um, you know, you have houses which have been like uh, left just just at the click of a finger, and and so they're kind of almost exactly as they were. Um, you know, the the seconds before the people fled, and that could have been a year or two ago. So you might have like a bowl, bowl and a spoon still on the table. Someone literally fled during their breakfast. Um, there's lots of destruction, you know, ISIS really, they prepared that whole area for, for, for urban combat. So you could go into a house which looks perfect, perfectly fine. And then you go into the, the downstairs, um, bedroom and there's a, there's a tunnel which goes 20 meters down and a kilometer that way. 
you know, they used these tunnels to burrow between villages so they could hide from the airstrikes. Um, and then, yeah, you've got, you, you know, you've got this disruption, you've got um, everything, everything you would expect, I guess. And uh, after, after the Battle of Mosul, you, you remained in the Middle East for a little, little while longer, is that right? Yeah, I mean, I, I originally, I planned to go to Iraq for like, a, you know, kind of a month or two. And then it ended up kind of, it ended up being sustainable. So I stayed there for the whole battle. And I left um, just after they captured the, um, it was called the Al-Nuri Mosque, where Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi kind of proclaimed the caliphate. And that was, you know, for, for many people, that was the end of the battle. Um, then after that, I, I, well, I came back to the UK, mm. had a couple of months at my parents' house, like doing nothing, just kind of, I guess, taking it all in. And, mm. Um, you know, wondering where well, where am I going from? You know, wh- wh- what am I doing next? Which was a, it was a really hard. That was a really hard period, actually. It was, you know, you you become you you spend so long fixated on one story, and and you're absolutely obsessed with it, and you're working like, you know, it's not a nine to five job. You're always you're just always thinking about it, and you're always trying to come up with ideas, and you're always trying to meet people, and then you like came back home and you have like nothing. You know, it's, you get kind of withdrawal symptoms and then yeah after that I, I went to, to Beirut uh, I was in Beirut for two months um, so whilst I was in Beirut I was kind of um, working on stories related to Lebanon and Syria were you there when the the PM yeah stepped down yeah so Hariri resigned PM Prime Minister Saad Hariri resigned on the 4th of November that was the day I arrived actually so I kind of checked my phone and uh... Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improved jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So baptism of fire. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I ch- checked my phone and it was just going crazy. And, you know, it, that, was, that was a really interesting story out to follow as well um yeah and then i st- stayed in beirut until yeah um new year's day i think um so you were you were there at christmas yeah i was yeah that was a personal choice though i just wanted to be out there you know i it's it's, it's weird i'm just i feel like i'm much better um conditioned to to life out there and you know i've never done christmas in beirut and what was it like yeah, I mean, it was perfectly normal. I had, we've got lots of friends out there, so we had a nice kind of traditional Christmas dinner. Uh, it's not too, you know, nothing too, nothing too fancy, but um, I just preferred being out there, for, for, you know, particularly for special occasions. I think mm. I like to try and keep busy, so being out there was, you know, I, I did a bit of work on Christmas Day as well. Like, I don't like to hang around um, too much. Fair. So what's your background? Where do you come from? So my parents are both from Northern Ireland. Mm. Um, they left Northern Ireland a very long time ago. Um, they moved abroad. I was born in born in Luxembourg, and then moved back moved moved to the UK um, really soon after I, I was born. Um, so like family home is Northamptonshire area. Um, three brothers, and yeah, I mean I I just remember like I, I went to a pretty good school. Um, and whilst I was at school, I was absolutely like infatuated. It was the Arab Spring was just kicking off when when I was in sixth form, and I think sixth form were really, really, you know, it's a really formative time in your life. And that was so. You've always have you, you've always known that you you wanted to be a, a journalist. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, it's wavered from time to time, and I do I do still think now that there are other things I'd like to try. Mm. But it all, I always end up coming back to wanting to be a journalist. Um, and then when I was in sixth form, I was like, I started meeting journalists then. Um, so I met with, um, I, I remember like Paul Conroy, who was, um, he's a photographer for the, well, he was a photographer for the Sunday Times. Uh, he was in Syria with, with Marie Colvin when, when she was killed. Um, I remember getting in touch with him just after he got out of Syria. And when he had got, he'd been smuggled out by the Free Syrian Army into Lebanon and it was like, been this massive story in the UK um, and I got him to come in and do a talk at my school just it must have been about six weeks after he after he came out um, and it, his words kind of just stuck with me forever he talked so fondly of, of being in Syria and of, 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 of Marie who obviously tragically died um, and that really kind of left an impression on me and it's things like that I always go back to whenever I'm wavering you know mm. You know, he was re- he was such a fantastic storyteller, and he used and he still does. He uses those skills w- with his pictures, but he, I found he was a great speaker as well. He he uses those skills to you know tell these stories of people whose stories really wouldn't. Get, it's a bit of a cliche, but they they really wouldn't get out otherwise. Um, and I, you know, I go back to that, and I think you know, that's kind of the, the sort of thing I'm aiming for. And you've you've come with with some some pretty huge stories from last year you won a new journalist of the year award 
and uh, one I particularly recall is is a is a mass was it a mass grave that you yeah you discovered? Could you tell me a little bit more about that story? It's, it's quite grim. Yeah, um, it's interesting how the how you end up covering these. That was that's, that story actually wasn't my um, my idea. I guess like one one of my editors at the Times, um, one of the foreign editors, called me up and said uh, that Reuters had broken that this grave had been found, but there was nothing. There was just the fact that this grave had been found. There was no mm. details on it. And he said, um, Gareth, go and check, go and, you know, go and have a look into this. And I went, sure, yeah. And so, the, so the next day I went, and um, there were a couple of other journalists there. Oh, well, yeah, a couple of other journalists went that day. Um, but myself and the, the, the other guy I was with, we really spent, you know, quite a few hours there. And we went to the... You know, we we eventually found the mass grave. It was just outside outside of this this town called Hamamalil, um, this like kind of small village, and it was like it was there was just like nothing there. It was just like wasteland mm. from afar. But once you got closer, you could see like the remnants of people. You could see like skulls, and um, yeah, I think I counted maybe you probably see about maybe twenty twenty bodies or something, and they were pretty badly decomposed. So it happened happened a while back, and you know, we'd got there, and I was like, right, okay, I've, I've seen this exists. This was actually the day, you know, one of the most surreal things about that day was uh, it was the day that Trump won the election. And I remember leaving, when we left Erbil, I, um, I kind of was looking at it on my phone, and, I, and then I just switched my phone off, and I was like, I don't want to follow that at all. So I was like fully focused on what, on, on the story at hand. We, we, yeah, we kind of looked around, we're like, yeah, okay, we've, we, you know, we've visited this mass grave, but like, how did this happen? What's the actual story behind this? You know, are these... We don't know who these people are. They could be, maybe... They could be ISIS fighters who were trying to run away and they were killed, or maybe they were... Maybe they're civilians. It was... really wasn't obvious. Um, so we spent, you know, a few... Most of the day in, in that kind of nearby uh, town just chatting to people. You know, do you know what happened there? And then it quickly became apparent, after speaking to maybe half a dozen people, that... It, it wasn't just a, a kind of massacre, but it was actually a kind of tale of heroism. The people that had been killed there, at least some of them had been vo- involved in an uprising against ISIS. And that was something, that, I mean, there, there are a few more stories about it now, but you mm. back then you really didn't hear about this kind of internal resistance to ISIS. So these, you know, as the offensive started, these, 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 these guys had tried to rise up against ISIS and take back control. Um, and, you know, it had ended brutally for them. Um, but you know there was people living like that gravesite. They were all they were all killed in that gravesite. So it was the scene of the crime, and it was where where all the bodies were left. But there were houses two hundred meters, three hundred meters away, and that was the kind of first. Well, let's go to that house. You know, someone someone's they if if that happened that close to your house, you know something about it. And you know we were we were able to speak to a to a man who'd heard it all basically. He'd heard it going off. He'd heard the screams. He'd heard the shots in in the dead of night. And, you know, I was able to kind of reconstruct the narrative of this uprising and then ISIS gathering all the people in, in the village square and some people had managed to sneak out. And, you know, their lives had been saved as a result and, and lots of the, the kind of adult males were just kind of frog-marched to this site and then and then executed. And, yeah, I mean, I, it, was, it, was, it was a really... It wasn't an easy, wasn't an easy story to do. But in some ways, it was it kind of wrote itself. I mean, mm. I, I think that story was a thousand words, and I remember 
my editor saying, you know, we want to, this needs to be in the paper tomorrow. And I didn't, I was like, oh, I, you know, I want to spend, I need to spend a day writing this. He's like, no, you, you need to get this, get this over to us. And I wrote it in about an hour, like in the back of the mm. car on the way back to Urbil. Because it was just, the story was so strong, it, it kind of put itself into words. Um, and there's another one that I picked up on the testing of chemicals on civilians. Yeah. Um, you came across that um, amongst some records that ISIS had kept. No? Yeah, yeah. See, so that was a little bit different in in the sense that that was passed to me by some um, by some contacts. So I, you know, I didn't find those documents myself, but um, the guys who did find them were really, really um, keen to get that out there. Because um, were they locals or journalists? Uh, they were they were locals. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they were local military. Um, and you know you it's 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 hard to you don't want to shock people but it's hard to tell people something different when it comes to speaking about the brutality of ISIS mm. it's really hard to 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 make people listen because they're I don't want to say it's it's a it's a type of fatigue but you hear it every single day about you know the violence the gratuitous violence and the beheadings and the the, the sexual slavery and all these things Yet there are still elements to this group that we don't really know much about, that we haven't heard about. And, and, and this was one of those things. I mean, it's like testing this stuff on, on human guinea pigs. Awful. Like, it'd be, you know, I, in my opinion, it's as bad as anything else they've, they've kind of carried out. So now, pretty much the, the war against ISIS, I wouldn't say that it's over, but it's, it's at the beginning of the end. Where do you see from your impressions that you've got on the ground, where do you see Iraq going? Um, so maybe it's my youthfulness or naivety, but I'm quite optimistic. Um, you know, there's a lot of, still a lot of, a lot of challenges facing Iraq, but I'm, I'm relatively optimistic. Um, I think Prime Minister Haider al-Abadi is, 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 is doing a, uh, you know, a fairly decent job given the sort of, pressures he's under from from Iranian-backed groups, um, you know, leading the fight against ISIS. He really hasn't had a moment to, to kind of sit still in the past couple of years. Um, he's, he's trying to reach out across sectarian lines. You know, he's, he's, he's Shia, but I really, from what I've seen, I really do think he is trying to, to reach out to Sunnis in places like Mosul and in Baghdad and in Fallujah and, and speaking to people in those cities, Sunnis in those cities, you know, they're kind of some of them have said to me, you know, actually, we're, we're going to vote for this. We're going to vote for this guy in the election. There's an election coming up in a couple of months' time. And they say, yeah, we'll, we'll probably vote for Abadi, mm. which is really interesting because hitherto, um, post-2003 Iraq has been almost explicitly defined along sectarian lines. Like, you vote for the Sunni candidate or you vote for the Shia candidate if you're Shia. And now you have someone like Abadi, who's he's not a really charismatic individual, uh, and he's not a very strong uh, prime minister, but he is starting to 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 breach these kind of sectarian barriers that have been placed. Um, and you know, in Mosul, like life is at least in the east. You know, the west is a very different city because it was so levelled during the fighting. But in the east, life's returned to pretty much normal. You know, there are shops open. Um, people are just getting on with things, and I think. You know, it's still a really precarious situation, but I think with the right kind of support from the the government in Bag the government government in Baghdad and from the international community, I think I think we're going to start seeing 
life returned to this kind of semblance of normality, at least in in the next few months and years. Um, but you know there are still huge challenges. You know half of Mosul was completely leveled. Like the old city in Mosul was completely destroyed. You know tens of thousands of civilians were were killed, and there hasn't really been any accountability there. You know Iraq is a long way from being this kind of functioning, stable democracy that a lot of people um, wanted it to be, kind of around two thousand and three. But it, you know it's getting there, and it's going to be. This is going to take decades. Um, but yeah, I mean. Let's wait and see. I mean, I think the election's going to be huge. They'll be the first post-ISIS elections. Let's see. Are candidates really able to reach out across sectarian divides? And if so, I think that's that's a really, really good thing. And, and you know, we're seeing people always said, like, Iraq doesn't really exist. It, it just exists on paper. It's not a real country. Mm. It's not a real state. But I think the last kind of year has, has shown that's nonsense. You know, we've seen Iraqi nationalism come on leaps and bounds. Um, whilst we don't want to see them overdo it on the nationalist sense, there's... There's a newfound national identity, I think, that's come off the back of defeating ISIS. Mm. This was, you know, this was like a global, a global battle, and the Iraqis were on, they were the sharp edge of, an, of a massive international coalition, and they take pride in that, and and they should, and I think that can be the basis for a new kind of Iraqi national identity, at least partially, and that, and that's a good thing. That's gonna uh, it's gonna help the country, kind of heal some of the wounds that it's seen in the last the last couple of decades. And what about you? Where do you go from here? I know you say you're working at the the National. Yeah, so I've just started working at the National, which is based in Abu Dhabi. Um, but we have a, a bureau here in London. Um, and, um, you know, it's a great little... I think in, in London we have about six journalists who work under um, Damien McElroy, who used to be um, Deputy Foreign Editor at the Sunday Times. Um, and it's a really interesting... It's very different, you know, I've never really worked in an office in London before. Mm. And I've also never really done stories in my own country, which is also an interesting challenge. Um, but, you know, largely speaking, it's, you know, it's a kind of ambitious paper. It's got a lot of resources and it's keen to, kind of, you know, a lot of journalism is like just kind of turning around copy these days. But with the National, they're, they're, they really do pri- put a lot of pride into kind of, you know, original content and getting out there and speaking to people and, 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 and making your work um, unique and different from, from whatever um, other outlets are churning out. And I like that. You know, that's exactly mm-hmm. what I was doing in Iraq. So I, it fits perfectly. And, you know, um, it's, it's, it's early days in, in the London Bureau at the National, yeah, but so far, I mean, I think there's some great journalists there and there's a great chance for me to learn as well. You know, I never did, um, I never did a journalism degree. I never really had that formal journalism education. So now for the first time I'm working alongside you know, very accomplished journalists who do have that and they also have the experience on the ground and you know, I think that's going to be really good for me. So it's a, you know, as, as well as just being a job, it's a, a kind of thing of personal development, professional development too. Any plans to, to go to the Middle East or anywhere further afield? Uh, uh, you know, I'm always planning trips away. I'm, sh- I'm sure it will happen soon enough. Um, for now, my you know, I'm in, I'm based in London, and we're kind of I'm covering Europe, and I'm happy with that. Um, you know, I'm sure I'll be back in the Middle East very, very you know soon enough. Thanks very much, Gareth. Thank you. Pleasure. Thanks for having me, Tom. Cheers. And for more from Gareth, you can head to www.thenational.ae. That was the Press Gazette podcast. I'm Thomas Kavanagh. Thanks for listening. Yeah.